Chris, you were in France two weeks ago, weren't you? You should know this. I should. Nice <laughs> we were, you were in the I neighborhood. Didn't know you were in France. It's near Luxembourg. <laughs> Wait, you were in France? <laughs> I was. You never told us. Yeah. Welcome once again to Free Associations for the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by time zones because I am back from the UK and I am here in the studio for the first time in how long has it been? Six, six months? months? Six months. And, and you are on the far east side of the time zone. Well, there's a little bit further. You can still get to Lubeck, but you're, you're back in the kind of like the normal center of a time zone. It's good. Which, where was I before? Well, I was in the, y- oh, I was in the Greenwich Mean Time. Right. Right. Wait, I'm confused then. So you're unkind. Because Greenwich Mean Time is in the middle of London. Right. So are there, that, that doesn't divide a time zone. Does it? Uh, no, because whoa. all of England is on the same time zone. Whoa! Yes, yeah, no, it doesn't. Found a problem. But, but like, I was in France last week, uh, and it, we were like out until ten thirty, eleven Could you p.m. See at night, and it was light at night. And I was thinking yeah, yeah, we yeah. must be on the far west side of this time zone. Yeah. Um, no, it's just way north. And and is, is Paris that much further north than Boston? Mm-hmm. Huh. Quite a bit. And I was in Ohio last week, and it was the same time zone as the one we're in right now. So it must have gotten dark pretty late. Late. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. Huh. It's like a th- almost a thousand miles away, and it's the I same time zone. I think we've we've lost our confusion about time zones. Dude. I think we have too. I think we should just keep talking about time zones for the next hour. What do you think? Huh. I think we should. Well, anyway, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am here with Chris Gill and Don Thea from the Department of Global Health here at the BU School of Public Health. Hello, Matt. And welcome back. And apparently, Don is not going <laughs> to welcome me back. Welcome back. We missed you. <laughs> We, we, as, we did miss you. We talked about it on always. On it's once, weird to once have you twice. here in, in the flesh. You want actually, to you're going to go into I'm another used room to and seeing just, you on a computer screen. I can I can go another room and That'd be good. remote in. So as we talked about, it is summertime, which means that the Population Health Exchange Summer Institute is now going on over. It's actually by the time this airs, it's over for sure. So you get the idea, but the point is it's too late for this year, but there's always next year and there's always new things going on at the Population Health Exchange. So go on over to their website at www.pophealthex.org, which is BU's hub for lifelong learning. And there's lots of good stuff on there. This is where you go. Like I've got this health. I'd like to exchange it for some different health. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That is exactly (laughs) what it is, Chris. That is why you've been spending so much time there, isn't it? (laughs) So now on to the show. So today, in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at whether you do, in fact, have to walk 10,000 steps a day in order to be healthy. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we will talk about a reproducibility study, which came to two different conclusions about the same data. And then in our Amazing and Amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or Chris will tell us why elephants love to get drunk on Amarula. Or will you not? I won't. I'm going to talk about something else today. Okay, fair enough. So let's get into segment one. So we are going to talk about an article that looked at whether or not you really do need to walk 10,000 steps a day in order to be healthy. So this study was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, and it was entitled Association of Step Volume and Intensity with All-Cause Mortality in Older Women by lead author Iman Lee of a little-known hospital in the small town of Boston, Massachusetts called Brigham and Women's Hospital of the Harvard Medical School. They invented ice cream. Did they now? Mm-hmm. 
See, now that isn't going to mean anything to anybody, one of our listeners, because... Go ahead. <laughs> you have to explain that. Oh, yeah. It's like, so there's Friendly's ice cream and there's Brigham's ice cream and there's Emacs and then there's Ben and Jerry's. But most people don't even know that Brigham's existed. It's, an, it's a very good ice cream, in fact. But it's, they don't exist anymore, it, do they? Oh, well, not, uh, they don't have outlets anymore, okay. but they still sell it as Top and Shop. Point is, in the New England area, there was a ice cream brand called That's Brigham's. my favorite ice cream. Is well, wasn't there also a women's ice cream? No. Yeah. Which is why it was Brigham and Women's? No. Oh, no, that's not sure correct. About that? Oh, okay. Uh, so anyway, let me give you the headlines on this one. So Time Magazine says you may not need the 10,000 steps a day your fitness tracker is telling you to take. CNN says just 4,400 steps a day tied to women living longer, study says. The Atlantic says you don't need to walk 10,000 steps every day. And Forbes, want to live longer? Keep walking. But 10,000 steps a day may not be the magic number. Uh, So this gets into something that I think a lot of people are aware of, this idea that we should all be taking more steps in our daily lives. And somehow this number 10,000 steps seems to be the number that we all have been told is the number of steps we need to take a day to stay healthy. So, Don, can you tell us what this study was all about and what they found? Do you know where that 10,000 steps came from? I well, I have a, a sense for where it came from based on reading the same article you did. Yeah, <laughs> apparently it came from a, pe- a pedometer that was manufactured in Japan in 1965. The Yamasa Clock and Instrument Company in Japan called the Mampoke. Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce mm-hmm. it? Chris, you're the mm-hmm. resident yeah, Japanese Mampoke. expert. Mampoke. which translates into 10,000 steps math. Exactly. So that number was completely pulled out of the air. Yeah, except that ten thousand is a is like a is a magic number in in Japan. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's like you know when they say like manzai, that means ten thousand. You know, uh, congratulations, ten thousand. Oh, so it's ten thousand. I did not know so that. T- yeah, and and huh. so the major unit of counting in, in in Japan, and I don't know about China, is ten thousand rather than one thousand. Oh, interesting. So like the, the, the ten thousand note, I and mean, they do also have a one thousand note, but ten thousand is like the big number that you count by. Hmm. So in any event, so this study is, as Matt said, is a study that looked at what what the uh, Healthful effects of um, walking exercises, and the uh, the major outcome that they were looking at was mortality. They took advantage of a study that had been in existence for a while called the Women's Health Study, which is a randomized trial that evaluated the balance of risks and benefits of using low-dose aspirin and vitamin E for preventing cancer. And in that study, which occurred between 1992 and 2004, they enrolled 39,000 women, uh, 45 years and older in the U.S., to look at some other factors. Uh, when the trial ended, women were invited into a subsequent observational study, and 30, approximately 33,000 women, or about 89% of the women who had survived that period of time of the original study, consented. And then within that observational study was nested this study, which was run between 2011 and 2015 to assess the physical activity. And they um, used accelerometers, which are the little devices that um, occur in a Fitbit or in your iPhone that tell you um, essentially how many, how many steps you actually take in a day. So the women were asked to wear this device for seven days, only during waking hours. And they, they collected all that information and they used only women who wore this device for more than 10 hours per day in more than four days out of the seven. 
And they got 18,000 women, um, which is about 62% of the survivors within that subsequent observational sub-study to um, comply with those, those sorts of instructions. And of those, about 17,000 agreed and wore and returned their devices. And data were downloaded for a final data set of about 17,466 women. So this is a really large data set followed for a relatively short period of time in a pretty homogeneous population using a device that is a very concrete measure of movement. Mm-hmm. So, so really, the input data is, is really quite solid on this. The outcome were deaths that were um, reported by family members or postal authorities, um, confirmed with medical records and death certificates, as well as going through the National Death Index. So I th- it seems as if the, the authors did a pr- really pretty good job at ascertainment of deaths among these mm-hmm. 17,000 yep. women. They were followed through December 31st of 2017, and the, the authors report that the mortality follow-up was more than 99% complete. So that's a pretty pretty good data set with a, you know, solid input data as well as solid outcome data. They also measured intensity of walking. So it's not just the volume or the number of steps that women um, would walk over the seven-day period of time, but also the peak one-minute cadence or sort of the the maximum intensity or maximum frequency of steps taken during any one-minute period of time, the peak 30-minute cadence, and the maximum five-minute cadence. And they also summed up the time spent at stepping rates of um, zero, one through 39, or 40 steps per minute or greater. So they really broke it down into a level of, in, uh, of intensity. And very high intensity, or 100 steps per minute, which is probably close to running, occurred very infrequently. So they didn't really look at that as one of the variables. In terms of other variables that they, that they uh, looked at and included were sociodemographic, typical sociodemographic characteristics, health habits, personal family medical history, whether cardiovascular disease or cancer was reported. Um, and if they were, they were confirmed with medical records substantiation. Um, They had a questionnaire, which was done as close to the time of wearing the accelerometer as possible. And in that questionnaire, this is all self-reported data. They asked weight, height, smoking status, alcohol, postmenopausal hormone use, self-rated health, hypertension, cholesterol, diabetes, CVD, or cardiovascular disease, cancer screening, and family medical history. They also measured diet, but that was sort of one questionnaire that was a 131-item food frequency questionnaire, Mm -hmm. and they didn't really get into that much in the analysis. So in the analysis, what they did basically is they took the outcome and they split the, the, this, this um, observational cohort into quartiles of step in 1,000 step per day incremental units. And they also did a sensitivity analysis, which I think we're going to dive into a little bit to um, try to address the issue of reverse causality, or if they were sick, they were not likely to be taking many steps as opposed to taking many steps, um, having um, a potential relationship with mortality. They excluded, I think it was incident cancer, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes of those women um, at enrollment. And they also excluded women who report who self-reported that their health status was less than good. Mm-hmm. So if they reported that their health status was poor, they were omitted from the analysis as well as women with a body mass index of less than 18.5. Again, sort of screening out the, peop- the people in the cohort who tended to be less healthy. Was that the main analysis? Or I thought that was the sensitivity analysis. That, those were the sensitivity oh, okay. analysis. Sorry. Got, yeah. it. Got yeah. it, got it. 
Um, all right. So as far as results are concerned, um, the median age, I guess, I think it was at the beginning of the observation period was uh, they were 72 years old and they tended to be younger and healthier by their own self-report than the non-participants. The mean time duration of wearing the device were 14 hours per day, which is really pretty good. I guess most, most of the hours during which they were awake. The mean step count was about 5,500 steps per day. And for intensity, it was uh, the one minute intensity was 58 steps per minute at the peak intensity for one minute. And the maximum five minutes was about 100 steps per minute or about two and a half miles an hour of walking. 51% of the time, there were no steps recorded. So they mm -hmm. were languishing on the couch or watching TV or catching up with their Netflix. Taping um, podcasts. Taping mm -hmm. podcasts. Obviously. Right. And... 3.1% were recorded at 40 or more steps per minute, which kind of defines the, the upper tranche of, of activity. The follow-up was about 4.3 years, and they registered 504 deaths among 17,000. The baseline data were reported various characteristics by quartile, the lowest versus the highest quartile of step volume, and there were the expected differences. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the women who had the highest quartile tended to be younger, tended to have a lower BMI. They tended to be um, less likely to be smokers, less likely to have a history of hypertension, cholesterol, diabetes, or cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. Pretty much what we would have expected going into this. They ate more fruit. They ate more fiber. They were less yeah, likely to be smokers. They were, they were basically healthier in every right. single way you can imagine. Right. Including a the bunch. ones in the highest quartiles, right, right. you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Including ones of we, which we would now say post-talk are probably not causal, but right. are maybe markers of healthy behaviors. Mm -hmm. right. So sort of self-stratification. Right. They constructed four Cox models, survival models, and looked for um, uh, HR hazard ratios. One was simply the woman's age and the wear time of the accelerometer. The second was that plus all of the covariates that I had mentioned. The third one was, I believe, the preceding two plus BMI, cholesterol, and diabetes. And then the fourth one was um, a model that included intensity. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, those, are, those were things they adjusted for when looking at the relationship between quartile of steps and, and death. death. Right, right. So overall, there was, they found that there was a, uh, bottom line, 41% reduction in mortality. What was it? It was with the second quartile step volume. So around 4,400 steps per day, something like that. 4,400, yeah. So, so above 4,400 steps per day, they found about a, what, a 41% reduction in mortality. And then that plateaued at about 7,500 steps per day. And then there was, there was no additional benefit to mortality if you took more than 7,500 steps per day. And they did the various sensitivity analyses that I mentioned, and it didn't really change the results at all. And then when you look at the figure, I guess it was... Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a figure here in, in terms of the various models and the uh, number of steps. To me, it looked like there was a clear dose response. Right, but it kind of flattens out after but a while. But then it flattens out. Yeah. Um, and then when they adjusted for intensity, there was no meaningful effects. So the take home on that is that it's important for you to move. It's important for you to have more than 4,500 steps per day. Above 7,500, it doesn't matter so much. And intensity is not as... Important uh, as moving. Right. So, so if I could just 
try to try to summarize that a little. When you said the there was this uh, dose response, so so the dose response meaning there was a reduction in mortality for any amount of steps above, say, I don't know, thousand. Look to me like two thousand. Uh, well, I'm, looking, really I'm, looking the, I'm looking at the figure dose yeah, yeah. response association, right? Yeah, and then it, and then it sort of so the in, the benefits though are increasing. Right. The more steps you take right. until you get to, as you say, about seven thousand steps, and then it just kind of flattens off. There's right. really no additional benefit. Okay. Right. The the, the lowest the lowest quartile had twenty seven hundred steps per day, and then the and then the quartile number two had forty three hundred and change. Yep. And so the the number that the media has picked up on is 4,400. And that is not because of this analysis you're talking about here. It's because of the quartile analysis. Right. Where quartiles meaning we break, we look at the distribution of steps that people are taking in this population. And then we break people up such that there are four evenly dispersed groups four groups and wherever that happens to be at the cut point is where we say is the limit. So in this case, the first quartile ends at 4,400. It's an arbitrary number, right? but 4,400 is the number that the media picks up on. Okay. Yeah. And, that, and the weird thing is that, that by definition, the first quartile ends at 4,400. So you're, you're comparing the benefit in the three other quartiles to the first quartile. So by definition, the first quartile can't have any benefit because that's the comparator. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Whereas, so 4,400 is, is kind of meaningless. Well, exactly. Whereas when you look at the full gradient here, you see that actually 3,000 is better than 2,000 right. if you believe this. Right. Okay. So, so Chris, can you give us your take on this study? And in particular, I want you to focus on the question, which is that I just looked at my step counter. I've hit 10,018 steps. Will I live forever? Um, yes. Good. Good. Yes, you will. Thanks, Good. Matt. Podcast over. Okay. Um, <laughs> I uh, was That's in, in a day or a week, Matt. Oh. I bet you walked a lot while you were in London. I did actually walk to work. Yeah. And then, uh, I, I was in Paris uh, two weeks ago uh, and we walked constantly and my, my little Apple watch kept track of it mm-hmm. and would tell me at the end of the day that I'd done like 20,000 steps and I was like but, astonished. But was that because you were in Paris or is that because you were on vacation? Uh, yes. Okay, good. Anyway, continue. So yeah, you but were in was, Paris two weeks ago? I was in Paris two weeks ago. Really? Yeah, it was great. We <laughs> ate crepes and cheese Wait. and wine. Wait, you only mentioned it so far in two segments of the podcast. <laughs> right. I assume this is going to work into your amazing okay. and amusing. So what I was going to say uh, about this study is, um, you know, it, first of all, I was really astonished, as I think as you were, at how generally sedentary this population was. Yeah. That 50% well, of them well, walked very little. Like even less given than the age of the population? Well, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's can be understood as mm-hmm. we get older. But I, I I was surprised that we didn't even come close to this magic number of 10,000, which we agree is, is a totally made up number. But we, well, we in a population of average age of 72. Right, right, of course. So, right. Being okay. closer to the average age of 72, I can, I can attest to the fact that this is really quite accurate. Right, right. Well, I understand. <laughs> and I think it's probably true for me too, which is the you're embarrassing part of this. as close as I am. I think I, I do better when I'm mowing the lawn. <laughs> but, um, you know, even if, if you look at the, the interquartile range on the highest quartile, yep. it doesn't even, it, it, it still falls very far short of the magic 10,000. So basically, for all intents and purposes, nobody in this cohort got 10,000 sure, steps. Sure. And so, you know, we can, we can first of all say that 
magic number is total balderdash. Mm. But we can just forget really? about it. Really? I was so was solidly this, derived. I, Why I, would you think I'm, it would be balderdash? There was, magic, there was magic in the air, and we found this magic number. Why? Why is it balderdash? Well, it has no no basis here. At least we're, we're seeing that, the at least within this population, that the, the healthy benefits, assuming it's causal, seem to really max out at a much lower level. So some basically what I take away from this is it's being somewhat active on a daily basis is very healthy. It's probably very healthy, assuming it's causal, and I will get back to that. So let's get to the assuming it's causal part, which I think is okay. The key. So the the assuming it's causal part, it, you like, knew d- he was going to go there. It, well, of course, we, <laughs> what we, is we the point of this podcast other than that? <laughs> right, we, we're this is a cohort study. Is the mental health studies? We've we've sort of taken pot shots of this cohort. Is not causation. Exactly, Fisher would be happy to hear that. So you said in your your overview, Don, when you went through the table one, that like these women were the the highest quartile versus the lowest quartile were basically healthy in practically every dimension that you could uh, you could associate with health, and so. I would say not only that, but because this is a cohort study and we have questionnaires and there's only so many questions on the questionnaires, let's assume that there are probably many, 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 many more things that had one had a bigger questionnaire, you could do the same thing. And so there's bound to be a lot of unmeasured and hence uncontrolled for confounding based around un, you know other aspects of healthy living, which may themselves not be causal or non-causal, but there's a huge effect of the healthy user built into this. With that said... I kind of bought this. I thought, I mean, it seems very biologically plausible. Why would, you know, more exercise not be better than less exercise? The thing I guess I was a little surprised at is that it it did seem to sort of plateau and max out around 7,500. I thought that, you know, high intensity exercise would also be, you know, beneficial. Beneficial. And at least in terms of this sort of very, you know, artificial construct, which is how many steps you take a day, which is not a terrible one, but it is not, it doesn't capture the full spectrum of things that one can do to be healthy and active and, you know, exercise. But nonetheless, it's a pretty good one. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very... It's unambiguous. It's unambiguous and, it, and it's a very accessible measure because right. everybody takes about the same length step t- and, and, and by and large exerts relatively the same amount of energy with one step. So this is, to me, a very useful parameter for the general public to use to, to, to figure out you know, what level of healthy activity is going is yeah. to be beneficial to me. One thing I, I really wish they had done would be to sort of break this down in terms of, of like intermittent higher intensity stepping versus you know, sustained like daily stepping. You know, for, for taking me as an example, right? I got up in the morning, I go and get in my car, I sit on Route 90 in a traffic jam fuming and you know, doing math games with people's license plate numbers to, so I don't go insane. And then, um, <laughs> you know, like counting them up in different inter- inventory. How many oh, ways can God. you count up the numbers and get the same answer? Uh huh. You know, things to keep you happy. Uh-huh. And then I, I, I walk down the stairs, I do my exercise. Then I go and take the elevator to my office and I sit in my office all day feeling like a, a, a big sack of suet. Yeah. <laughs> doing emails, right. being super active. And then I, I sit in the, the traffic jam on the way home. The exact and then I reverse in the opposite direction. And then I like, you know, grouse and grouse at the dog because I'm so Wait. grumpy and pissed by the end of the day. Where's this I can't going? do anything. And so I'm totally set into it. But on the weekend, I'm like, yes, weekend. I'm going to go do stuff. And, and first I mow the lawn and I have a very lo- big lawn. So it takes me like four hours. And so I'm walking for four hours. Can we it's really Chris great. Chris back on message? Yeah, don't think oh, so. Where's this going? All right. So the weekend, my weekends are totally different from my days. When I'm like during the Monday through Friday, I'm really sedentary. And then on weekends, I'm not. And, and I, I think it would be lovely to, to look at mm. different patterns of like average Monday through Friday behavior versus high intensity one or two days a week. And mm. whether there's some threshold of like numbers of high intensity days of exercise you could take yep. that would counteract for the otherwise slothful nature of my life. Yep. I would love to know that. 
I don't think that there's anything that could counteract your slothful life. That's yeah. my my take on this. Except for mowing the lawn. So my so when I when I read this study, my my I thought of the red wine and and heart health debate that's been going on for years. Of, that was in here. Wine well, was, was uh, alcohol use was highly protective against mortality in this data set. Yep. So you got this, you got this often observed U-shaped curve in which alcohol appears to be protective when it's moderate alcohol consumption or a particular red wine, but seems to be harmful with small amounts and, and large amounts. And so this has been, this is, as far as I understand, has been debunked over the years because the, while the high alcohol consumption does appear to be bad for you, the, the, the reason that moderate alcohol consumption tends to look protective isn't because it actually is protective. It's because people in the low alcohol consumption group are the people who are not consuming alcohol because they have illness reasons that would put them at risk for cardiovascular disease and i i fear the same thing is going on here which is to say that the if you look at the group of people who is the comparison which as don you point out there's there's that's the everyone low below 4400 in at least in their quartile analysis you know i definitely wonder why are those people only able to to or only walking less than 4000 steps per day and what is the what is the reason for that some of them it's just because they don't want to or they you know whatever but for some of them it's because they have health issues that would put them at risk for death now as don you pointed out they did some sensitivity analyses to try and deal with that but i'm just not convinced you really ever could and so i think that Chris, like you, I think there is something going on here. I definitely do think there's something going on, but I don't think I believe this specific analysis tells us the answer. The other thing that that really strikes me about this is I don't believe there is a number. (laughs) I don't think there is any such thing as one number that if we all just hit that one number every day, we would all be much healthier. I think there is, you know, there's variations for one thing per person. There's, you know, averages over time that might, you know, be more relevant or less relevant. I don't know. But I also think there's not the same number for necessarily for you and for me. Now, obviously, we're dealing in averages and we're trying to come up with a, a way to give us a target that would allow us to improve population health and not individual health. But still, I think we're, we're, we're looking in the wrong direction when we try to say there is one Mm-hmm. number it's, it's, that we all need you, to you, hit. You, so you think, you, you think that we, sort of the collective, we are a little too fixated on a specific concrete number as opposed to doing more? Yeah, well, not necessarily. No, for you, it may be that, you know, if you don't hit 10,000 steps a day, you're going you're gonna to have problems. Whereas for me, as long as I hit 2,000, it's going to be fine. Because you're hypermetabolic. Whatever the reason is. Yeah, I just, my point is I don't think there is one number for everyone, right, right. which isn't to say I think, you know, numbers are, are having a target is a good thing. And and to improve population health, we probably need numbers. But I'm just not convinced that that there is one number for everybody. Whether it's 4,400 or 10,000. Exactly. Yeah. Can, can I also add to that? Because I, I know we had mentioned earlier that there was that things leveled out after 7,500. But in fact, it, it levels out much, much earlier because the difference between quartile one and two is huge. And the difference between all the subsequent quartiles is almost in, is, is very, very small. Yep. I mean, it does go a little bit. There is a dose-dependent effect, but it is subtle compared with the first jump. And so, like, that surprised me, too, as in, like, I would have thought there would be a much more pronounced dose response effect than that. I I think part of it has to do with the quartiles, though. I mean, I think part of that is I'm not a big fan of using quartiles for this exact reason is quartiles give you an arbitrary number. The whole point of this seems to me we had this number of 10,000 and we wanted to know is 10,000 really a magic number? 
The answer to that seems to be probably no. But what is the magic number? Then then try to figure out. Well, you can't figure that out with quartiles because quartiles make an arbitrary, a new arbitrary number. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that but that magic number, as Chris said, was is bogus because it was pulled out of thin air, even though it has become sort of lore. But so is forty four hundred. Is my point. The media well, it's wants based a number. On a little bit more data than the ten thousand was because the ten thousand was a bonsai. Was it was a bonsai number, right? right. They just like ten thousand. Yeah, I I do agree with you there, but but I think the forty four num forty four hundred number is still pretty bogus. Is a little bit is, is, is so not a, as much, but 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 still arbitrary. So yeah. analytically, would there be a, a a a better way of doing this to sort of say is well, there can we define no, an no. actual inflection point here? Yeah, where no, that is their that is their figure that we've been looking at here, which shows the the gradient, the plateau with using mean steps per as a continuous variable and you see compared to those who you know it's impossible for me to tell where the axis starts but compared to those who you know are, are have a very low step count any increase seems to be associated with a decrease in mortality up to about you know six thousand seven thousand steps somewhere in there but again i'm skeptical of that because i think that your very very low step count people are throwing off the data because I think those people are in that low step count because for some of them, it's because they are in fact sick. Yeah. And so what this what this analysis would look like if you were truly able to remove those, I think might be very different and you might find more of a, a, a larger you know, benefit to even just going from you know, 1,000 to 2,000. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's kind of what you said earlier, which is doing more. So do you feel the same way about the intensity data, the intensity analysis? Because, because that, mm-hmm. I think, also is an important but subtle message that people could, could potentially erroneously get from these conclusions because there, you know, there's, there's a body of knowledge to suggest that if we, that we will get more benefit out of exercise if we get our heart rate up to 75% of predicted maximum for some sustained period of time, which is pure intensity. And th- these data, if we're to believe them, seem to suggest that that's not at all important. It's really just, I mean, you could be yeah. walking at a quarter of a mile an hour, as long as you get your f- whatever number of steps that we would agree on in, that um, that's the most important thing. It's not the intensity. So it's not really cardiovascular, not cardiovascular health, but it's, it's, it's cardiovascular tone, if you will, or conditioning. Yep. It's, it's, it's more really moving. And maybe that's just because you're more flexible and you don't break a hip yep. and you live a lot. Who knows? Sure. Possible. So as you know, I always write down what was my, my prior before I read the study and my prior on this one, that the, the number 10,000 was made up, but this won't give us much additional information. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, 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 mm. I don't actually think that's true in the end. Cause I do think there's some additional information, but I don't think it's as detailed as we want it to be. I don't buy the idea that, that more intense, exercise wouldn't be better for you than less intense exercise and therefore, as my prior, and therefore it's going to take more than just this to convince me that that is true. The second yeah, thing I would I, emphasize, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I agree that, that I, I, you know, I, I, I think I believe in the underlying data a little bit more than you do, yeah. but I, I disbelieve the intensity data pretty intensely. <laughs> I, a couple other points, which is that I, you said that the, the, the measure of steps is, is quite good. And I do agree with you in the sense that I think these devices, Mm, they do a reasonably good job 
Uh, Much better than recall. Oh, f- oh, far, far better. But are, uh, how accurate are they? But they only wore it for seven days. So you're trying right. to say, no, true. you know, seven, true. 10 days or whatever it was. Yep. 10 days doesn't really tell me well, about a, four a, a, out, a or lifetime. Or at least four out of seven. Uh, it doesn't tell me about a lifetime of exercise. So whatever. The other, I think, really important point that we have to make is this is a population of average age of 72. And so right. the steps and the exercise and the patterns that we need, the, the fact that the media is giving us headlines that say, you know, you know maybe you don't need to walk 10,000 steps. Maybe it's only 4,400. If you are a 72-year-old female prior marathon runner in this population. (laughs) So I'm, I'm, I think it's just way out of, Mm -hmm. uh, ahead of the skis. What's the expression? Over the skis. Over our skis on this one. Anyway, the other thing. Last word. You want the last word, Chris? Well, I was just striking, struck by the, the data regarding the time spent at a stepping rate of greater than 40 steps per minute, which we are somewhat skeptical of. Yes. But so this is the high intensity exercise metric. And, mm-hmm. and if anything, there is a, a, an adverse effect of higher intensity uh, exercise here. So for those in the highest quartile, for example, the, the relative risk of mortality was 1.3, which so is actually 30% higher risk of death if you exercised hard as opposed to exercising a little. And maybe that's true if, if, you're, that's true. if you're 72 years old, but I, I, I wouldn't want to generalize that and I'd want more data before I'd be able to right. feel, feel confident in that. Right. All right. Any last points, Don? Nope. Okay, so I do. I did want to just take the last word to to note that um, take it back was, from Chris. You mean there was a exactly there you was gave a, Chris the last word. Well, no, I, I always there. take the last word. I have a section called the last word, and I get the last <laughs> word every you, time. You just said to Chris. Never mind. So I thought it was interesting. So, so the the fact that the, the the statistic that they quote in the introduction is that worldwide. But, you know, because they have all this data now that's that's been aggregated from smartphones that are tracking us all the time and counting our steps. Worldwide, the average number of steps accrued daily measured by smartphones is approximately 5,000. Hmm. So the average person is doing about 5,000 oh, steps a day. So but that's, that, all, that's all ages. That's all, all ages. But if that 10,000 number were correct, yeah. we're halfway there. Hmm. All right. That's one way to look at it. Another <laughs> way to look at it is that we're mostly sitting around. Mostly. All right. So let's move on to our segments. Is that the last word? Yes. Now this is the last word. No. No, no. This is the last word. <laughs> is it? It is. <laughs> I just want to be clear about who has the last word here. I get the last word. Okay, in our second segment. That's like playing the why game with a five-year-old. Why? Why? In our second segment. first? So we want to talk about an article that was uh, in Nature by David Adam, which was entitled, Reproducibility Trial Publishes Two Conclusions for One Paper. I love that. This is the wishy-washy studies. Like, yes, it does or not. It's an interesting, it's an interesting one. So, I, And then the reason we want to talk about it was because it, it, it sparks some interesting issues. So the study... The, the, the paper, I should say, reported on uh, a study which looked at how deeply an anesthetist should sedate an elderly person when they have surgery. And there's debate on this issue because there's concern that too much sedation will cause problems. And the, the thing that was interesting about this particular study was that, and I'm quoting here from the, the article, there was uh, an unusual peer review experiment that, that the journal took on as part of this particular study. So this particular journal, the British Journal of Anesthesia, 
uh, is taking some of its papers and it's now asking for an independent expert, so somebody who is not part of the study team, to actually go and read the study, so the introduction, the methods, and the and the results, and then that person would then write their own discussion section for the article, in which they would draw their obviously draw their own conclusions. Totally divorced from the original primary. Totally team. divorced from the primary study, and so in this particular example, there was uh, a dr- disagreement about the conclusions that the original authors, I would say, drew from the study, uh, in which the the independent reviewer concluded that the study didn't actually have enough power to support one of the main conclusions. And so the question becomes, is this something that is worth doing? Do we want to separate out the process of doing science from drawing conclusions about science? Do we feel that those who do the science have vested interests in the conclusions that prevent them from being objective? Or do we think that they are the ones who are best placed to try and draw the conclusions for the study. And so I, I throw that question out to you both, but in particular, I I will just make the point that you may or may not remember, Chris, you won't because you're not much on Twitter, that I put out a tweet, what, about six months ago, in which I made the, the comment that I think discussion sections are stupid and I hate them, I hate writing them, I hate reading them, and I don't think that we should do them anymore. And, okay, I wasn't, it's only a tweet, so I didn't <laughs> say all that. Apocryphal. I didn't say all that. Wow. And I was ripped apart. Okay, people strongly disagreed with me that that this is discussion sections are important, where you put things in perspective, inclusions. I don't know. I You're actually just being provocative. I I was being provocative, yeah. but I don't. I don't. I do think there is a conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In discussion sections, yeah, yeah. what do you guys? What do, what do you guys think about discussion sections, or about reproducibility by having a second second pair of eyes? Well, it's the same thing to me. Uh huh. Well, obviously, we know that we cannot trust ourselves to be objective. We know that. So uh, are we? Is, is the question, are we surprised that there's bias in the interpretation of our own data? I guess we're not surprised. No, no. I don't we're think not we surprised. Are. No. Well, no. So, 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 so I guess my question is, why do people get so upset when authors draw conclusions that may not be supported by the data? Why don't we just simply say, you've got a vested interest, so I'm just going to ignore anything you say? Mm-hmm. Uh, I no, I, I I agree. I think we are biased. We do have a vested interest. We wanna, I think, always paint our results in the splashiest light we can, whether they're positive or negative. And it's very hard, I think, for most authors to conclude that they've spent all this money, did all the put all this time, and did all this work, and they have come up with a conclusion or a result that um, is meaningless mm-hmm. or is is ambiguous a, is a, or just not as strong as they want it to be. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and if if we we could do what you're suggesting. I think it would be it, it. It probably would be more intellectually honest, a more scientifically honest way to interpret because there wouldn't be a vested interest. But I thought about that, and I just could not understand how we could logistically change the system over from what it is now mm-hmm. to a world where things are being done the way you're suggesting that. Because I think it would be it would be ideally better, but I think you would have a really hard time getting the numbers of discussants who have no vested interest in the work to participate at a level that is all meaningful. So I, I would I would agree that everybody's kind of probably got a vested interest. So there's there it would be very difficult to find a person who had both the expertise to understand the material 
and the could energy write. and the time. So, so the energy and the time I'm less concerned about. And I say that because where would this come from? If you were really going to make this as a system, this would be the peer reviewers, right? So they're, they're writing this up anyway, essentially as part of their peer review, you would just sort of incorporate, if you're a peer reviewer and the paper is accepted, I would be the person or I'm the peer reviewer. I would then turn my, my review into my, my, you know, my discussion. It doesn't have to be super long. A couple of paragraphs I think would be appropriate. I don't I don't have a problem with the authors putting the literature in context putting the study in the context of the literature, that part of it. It's the drawing conclusions and the uh, acknowledging and discussing the limitations, which I do think the authors need to do themselves because often if you don't tell me about it, I don't necessarily know about it, but I can at least tell you what I think our potential concerns. So uh, you're right, Don. I mean, you, 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 it's going to take more effort, but it just seems to be an interesting way to try and deal with this problem of the, the, the competing interest. I'm, I'm like thinking about the operationalization mm-hmm. of this concept. Yep. And so I, I think in the publishing, the medical journal publishing model, it would be very, very, very difficult to do this need. There, there is possibly one way I can, I can Why? imagine you might do it. Uh, well, because first of all, most reviewers are not statisticians. So how, how would they do this? Like I, I cannot, and, and you but, would have but to have the most reviewers, reviewers write their own discussion sections. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. So, you, so you, you, it would be an undue burden to expect them to reanalyze the data as was done in this case that the reviewers are not going to be able to do that. I don't think they reanalyzed the data. Am I, I wrong they, about that? I think they did. They I, actually they, did. They drew a conclusion. They did a, a power calculation, was my understanding. Um, no, in this case, the journal actually reanalyzed the results and reached a different conclusion. Mm. So they, they they took a second look at the data. Okay. So that that would be a heavy lift. I think there are there are a lot of people who think, though, that that should be done as part of the peer review process. But and, anyway, go ahead. And in some cases, they, they do. Yep. But what you could do practically would be perhaps to to create the a, a different format for how you do a peer review. So in the current model, you download the entire PDF and you read the whole thing and the tables and maybe you go on to the supplement materials and review those as well if you're really curious and then you write your review. What if the peer reviewer was asked instead to read the intro methods and results then to render the an opinion yeah. about what they thought it meant and then read the discussion to see whether they aligned with what, or not even see the discussion. Or, or not even see it. Just write the discussion section that you would write, which may have come to the conclusion that this study is, didn't really find anything. Right. And if there's a big disconnect between those two, then it's up to the editors to kind of reconcile that and see where the, the, yeah. the burden of truth lies. I think this could, could be, done. be done. Yeah. A way that this is actually being done, though, is in the review of drugs and uh, vaccines and biologics by FDA, okay. where the... There's a multi. There are multiple steps in this. One of which is that the the endpoints for defining success and failure, which are all about hypothesis testing. So we're going to kvetch about that because mm-hmm. we think it's too rigid. But all of those are negotiated in advance, and so the it prevents them from post hoc manipulating the you know oh we saw a trend toward blah blah. Therefore, this is great. So that's one way that you can kind of choke that off is by having very rigid criteria at the front as to what success is. Is that the same as, as interpreting? No, it's okay. not it, it, except around like pre-specified endpoints. So, you know, and it's only going to be driven by the odds ratio and the confidence intervals around those odds ratios. The second way that this is done, and this is unique to the FDA is that the FDA has its own team of statisticians. And so is part of the BLA or the NDA What's a BLA? A uh, biologics license application or a new drug application. The, the sponsor applying for the license will submit the SAS codes that they use to generate all the the tables, yep. as well as the raw data sets. And then the FDA does its own statistical review using those codes and those data sets to see if they can recreate the data that was presented in the BLA. 
And so that is a very, very labor intense way of doing QC. Uh, I think it would be not manageable in the current peer review model, but mm-hmm. that is a way that in the current model, things are actually done. Now, the sad truth around that is that once the drug has been licensed, we see that there's all sorts of post hoc fiddling with these data in the literature because you see all these, like, you know, the study that John Ioannidis harps on where you had all these, you know, uh, I don't I think it was antidepressant studies which had largely failed to show effect and yet were spun in the published literature as being successful or if they were, like, clearly not successful in the BLA application were not published at all. So there's other ways of skewing things other than having sort of a very tight criteria and a QC at the, the level of the primary data. Yeah. But how, to, how to take that into the level of publication, I, I, I don't know other than this algorithmic approach maybe to peer review. Yeah, and again, I, I, I mean, that is that would be a step beyond. The, 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 there are certainly people who think that we need to be doing more around reanalyzing data at the time of peer review. But but even going, but, but this is this. I mean, I think this is more modest than that. And just saying, having somebody else do the interpretation, so that we don't end up drawing conclusions that are not supported by the data. I, it's just, I'm, I, you know, we're not going there anytime soon. But as a field, I should say. But I, I'm interested in this idea. You know, and one need not like completely change the peer review process. Like, imagine that you have an article that is reviewed by three peer reviewers. One of them could be designated as the primary, and they could do this yep. this thing of writing the discussion section without seeing the discussion. And the others could do just review it the way they always exactly. do. Yep. I think there's all kinds of models that potentially could work here. By In the fact, way, it would be a fascinating experiment to do that, to see if it led to systematically to different conclusions. Mm-hmm. I agree. By the way, did you see that the New England Journal has put out new guidelines today for statistical analyses and they are oh boy, oh slowly boy. moving away from p-values it says it Seriously? implies they're Fantastic. slowly they're slowly. finally taking your did advice you them? i did not i did not bribe them at all all right well chris we- chris were you in paris last week uh, uh, two weeks ago <laughs> yes and i, sp- I, I did about twenty thousand steps a day and did i ate a lot really? of cheese did you uh, write any discussion sections of anyone else's paper not a one not a one not a one you just sat like a but I, it. I attempted to speak French on a daily basis. Well done. Okay. Uh, let us May move we. on then to our Amazing and Amusing, which I need to, before we, before we get into the Amazing and Amusing, I need to say that uh, if you, so we were all away for last week's episode and Nick put together a fantastic Amazing and, and Amusing compilation. Fantastic. Which I will say I spent the last hour listening to and laughing out loud. Really? Oh, hilarious. These we guys are, are hilarious. We are funny guys. Guys are funny. Speak for yourselves. And Nick did a fantastic intro, which I am. I am. That was the funniest part. I'm quite impressed by. Don has not. Don has no, not I heard, you heard it. Need to go, you need to go and listen All to right, it. We'll do that. It's where do I, where do I find the podcast? Uh, it's a. It's on Population the Population Health Exchange website. Have you heard of this? No. It's a, it's a fantastic website. Really? You really it's a need to go. Resource for lifelong learning. It's a. It sure is. See, I've said it so many times. Even Chris could could do this <laughs> in his sleep. <laughs> okay. Amazing and amusing. I'm not even going to, I'm not doing the intro anymore. Chris, what do you got for us? It's summertime. And it that means sure people is. are going to the beach. And what is going on at the beach these days, guys? Close. Cape Cod? Sharks. Yes. Sharks. Yes. Lots of them. Lots of them. So because no fun Because we have beach. lots of seals. Yes. Do you have the, the North Atlantic shark app on your iPhone yet? No. So cool. It shows you where the great whites have been have been spotted. Okay, hold on. It I'm downloading so as we speak. Cool. It is so cool. Anyway, it's a little bit chilling. You basically is don't it, want to go in the water at is all. It, is it Shark Week yet? Uh, every week is Shark Week at, at Brewster. Can I tell you? Can I tell you? I had a I gave a talk uh, a couple weeks ago in which I used a slide of a shark as a kind of a metaphor. And then you know how they have those like little text that you can put in the top of a slide. Yeah. And I put 
the uh, the dates for Shark Week in there and asked if anyone wanted to watch with me. And I, I got two people, only two people in the audience of roughly 100 who came and said something to me that they actually wow. noticed the uh, wow. my little joke. You didn't there. talk about Sharknado, did you? No. no. It's a very good movie. Oh, it's an excellent movie. Sharknado. It's excellent. up there with snakes on a plane. Who, it, yeah. Anyway, sharks. Anyway, right. So... This is a this is a paper that I I, uh, I found and I, and I was like Don Thea is gonna love this one because <laughs> it's it's like useless science <laughs> oh, <laughs> done really well. That is his wheelhouse. <laughs> this is yours. Anyway, so the, the 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 deal is that there was this this guy in September of 1994 who was a surfer dude and he was surfing off of the beach in Fl- uh, Flagler Beach in Flagler County, Florida. So don't go Say there, guys. Three times fast. Fl- Flagler, Flagler, Florida. Anyway, he was. Sur- uh, on his paddling away on his surfboard, having a good old time when he got chomped on his foot. And this was like a minor bite by, it was obviously a shark, but he didn't, you know, he was, it was his foot. So he was looking one way and the shark bit him on the foot and mm-hmm. let go and swam off and mm-hmm. he didn't know what it was. So he paddled in and he got some minor sutures and like was back to surfing and being a dude before you could say boo. He was not put off by this in the least. But the thing is that 10 years later, a fragment of the tooth migrated out of his foot. Because like, you know, often when sharks bite, the teeth are very brittle and they will fragment inside the oh, host. Oh, and so he like took this little fragment, took it to a friend and says, can you tell what kind of shark was this? Because he was curious. Mm-hmm. And the friend who was like a shark expert said it was too broken up and he couldn't really tell. But then another 10 years later, a second piece of this shark tooth migrated out of his foot. God. And this time he took it to his friend who was a molecular biologist and they sequenced the meta, the meta, <laughs> my, the meta mitochondrial gene now that's a good friend. And it was a, it was a black tip shark. <laughs> it was a black. It was tip a black shark. tip shark. Really? Carcharhinus lumbatus. Absolutely. So now he fascinating. Knows. <laughs> wow, that is pretty cool. Well, what, so when someone say, "What's eating you?" <laughs> you can say carcharhinus lumbatus. Oh, <laughs> I that, that, that was like so it changes absolutely nothing. Great. But I'm with him. I would have wanted to know. Anyway, this was in the Journal of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. If you want to read it, 2019 lead author was Lei Yang, PhD, who apparently has not enough to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so then I'm going to go next on the subject of people who have not enough to do, because my amazing and amusing is such. A, I'm so far out on a limb here in terms of uh, the relevance. You could lose anything. that limb if you go to Brewster. Uh, that is true. <laughs> or if you go swimming in Florida, right? This is so far. Stick to the lakes. I'm so far <laughs> out on a limb here in terms of any relation to science or anything that we normally talk about. All right. But I thought it was amusing, and I went with it anyway. And there is a tiny sliver of a relation that I will get to at the very end. All right. And I will tell you that I did not come up with this on my own at all. Mm-hmm. I got this from another podcast, which is one of my favorites, which is Pop Culture Happy Hour. Mm-hmm. If you don't listen to Pop Culture Happy Hour, you absolutely should. It's the it's where I get all my information about what's been going on in the pop culture without actually having to go and see these movies or read these books. And then I can talk about them at parties and sound like I know what I'm talking about. And uh, Glenn Weldon of Pop Culture Happy Hour used this as his little segment that they do at the end. And it is a Twitter handle. It is in more uh, accurately, it is a Twitter bot. Oh. It is a Twitter bot. Is it Russian? It is not a Russian bot. This was produced by uh, someone that we sort of, we don't know, but 
vague. I'll get to that at the end. Is it John Ioannidis? It is not John Ioannidis. That is really weird that you would even ask if John Ioannidis would have created a bot. He could be a so pop culture guru Chris, in addition you, to everything else. Yeah, it's true. Chris, you were you of the age to have watched the television show Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, oh, the yeah. cartoon? Oh, yeah. Can you sing us the theme song? No. But it's Donatello. It's uh, Michelangelo. Michelangelo. Nick's uh, got it. Leonardo. Nick's got it. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Did the way say Donatello you already? This? Raphael. Raphael, there we go. Do you, so do you remember the theme song? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> you don't remember this? No. Okay, so that was their theme song. So this, this guy has put together a bot which scans Wikipedia for entries in Wikipedia that scan to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme song perfectly. <laughs> wow. And it will send you, if you go to the at wiki underscore TMNT, it will send you every hour a uh, new headline from Wikipedia that scans perfectly to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme song. So I will give you the ones that it has produced in the past hour. <laughs> you have way too much time on your hands. Yep. Stephen Harris, wide receiver. <laughs> Districts of the Czech Republic. <laughs> Arthur William Baden Powell. So basically anything that's got eight. Brandon Miller, racing driver. Yep. And eight. you can do this for hours, right. hours a at a time. A lot of stuff has got eight. The, oh. We need to bring somebody in with perfect pitch, however. The, well, yeah, that's not going to be me. The only relation that this has in any way to anything that we do is the person who produced this was the same person who does the XKCD cartoon. You know the XKCD cartoon? No. Okay, well, it's... A, yes, I do. I, you I, do I, know I, it. I do it. I use, I use it in lectures all cartoon, the time. Cartoon, often about math and statistics right. and study design. It's the ultimate nerd cartoons. Ultimate nerd cartoons. By you got to check it Randall. out. The point is, that is where it comes from. And I make no apologies for talking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> this is very helpful. I'd be deeply yeah. embarrassed if no, I were you right got? now. Chris Gill, Matt Fox, the uh, ghouler. Not all. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently... We need no bots. Oh, God. I can no do this bots. all day. Chris could do this. Done. All right. So I have a paper of profound medical relevance. Oh, I like those. Yeah. Are you so, being facetious? Uh, not a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a paper that published in Motivation and Emotion by a Dr. Mm. Zions. And uh, I need to read this again. What, <laughs> what, what they did just, was just they, they looked at... Married couples took looked at the pictures of the faces of married couples that didn't look anything like one another when they first got oh, married. No. They then looked at they they took pictures of these married couples 25 years later, and they were independently judged by somebody who didn't know these people, and they were accurate at picking out the pairs of married couples. Wow. So that as people grow older and they are married to one another, they tend to look more and more alike. Oh, wait a minute. So, so I'm looking at two pictures of people, a bunch of pictures of men right. and a bunch of pictures, and I got to pair them up. Right. Right. Wow. And, and you, were far, you become far more accurate at pairing the, the true pairs when they're older and they've been married for 25 oh, years than when they're younger. That is and so cool. And it was apparently much more prevalent if the... <laughs> 
if the couples reported 25 years of happy marriage. <laughs> yeah, obviously. So the happy couples tended to look more like one another than the sad couples. Right, because they're, they're in it. They're, the, they're the, cool with it. No. So, they're not so fighting the, it. So the theory is based on nothing but absolute pure speculation, is that happy couples have more rapport, and that they've shown that when happy couples have more rapport, they tend to do more mimicking of oh. one another with their facial expressions. And so, oh, when so they this do wasn't more... based on clothing and things. No, no. This is based on the face. Just <sighs> only the face. So that when they do more mimicking as a couple in sort of empathetic ways, their facial muscles are no. doing the same kinds of So if you of, do happy, happy, grumpy, grumpy, that's, that's a match. And, that, and, that, and that the facial lines <laughs> that develop on these these couples because of this intense level of mimicry become, <laughs> become very similar. And that's why they, you tend to look more like your spouse after 25 years if you're in a happy marriage um, than if you're in a not my, a happy my marriage. My poor wife is destined to go bald. <laughs> it's unlikely that I'm going to grow hair. Marriage. What is happy, grow, happy, grumpy, and, grumpy? And grow a beard. Happy, expressions. happy, grumpy. He's like converging okay. one happy, one grumpy. Okay. That, that, okay. you got to wonder so, about that. Okay, so this, so obviously this study, that presumably the follow-on study has to be why people look like their pets. Yes. What is the reason for that? Do people buy dogs like bulldogs because they look like bulldogs? <gasps> Don is going to start. He's going to talk about it in the next episode. Right. Stay tuned. Stay because tuned. Matt didn't actually know this, but I am going to talk about this at the next episode. Wow. How people resemble their own dogs. That is so useful. I am. I can't wait. So with that, <laughs> you have wasted another perfectly good day listening to the Free Associations right. podcast. So that's the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a topic or a study for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at at ProfMattFox or Chris at at ID.Gill or Don at at DTheo1. You can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. And we have not had one new review Oh, for come six on. months. People, we need a new review. Yeah. So we want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing and guest hosting. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode. <laughs>